A pair of hikers from Rhode Island have been rescued after getting stuck in treacherous terrain on Mount Washington. At least one hiker expressed they were feeling symptoms of hypothermia. Officials tell us the hikers were brought to safety around 10 p.m. And thankfully, there were no injuries. This was no drill, but a real-life emergency deep in the White Mountains. Broadcasting from the Woodpecker Studio in the great state of New Hampshire, welcome to the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast, where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Here are your hosts, Mike and Stump. All right, Stomp, so I am um, I'm here to um, throw myself at the mercy of you and beg for forgiveness. So <laughs> I don't think it's your fault, man. I, I think I fucked up. I think I screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was user error, and I just pretended like it wasn't. I don't know. Um, yeah, we should call this one the, the missing episode, the lost episode. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so remember how, um, for the audience's sake, remember how in episode... 31 my audio sucked because I, I forgot to switch over to my microphone and my audio got picked up by my computer and it sounded horrible so I was like that's never going to happen again I promised and of course it happened in this episode <laughs> so when I sent over my audio to Stomp who is the editing genius like we are now we're recutting this again so I don't think when's when did we I feel like it was we recut episode one and two because they were fucking horrendous right so <laughs> But I think that's the last time, And they're time, right? still pretty horrendous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Episode one is like the most popular <laughs> download, and I'm, I cringe when I think about it. But I think oh this is God. the first time we've had to recut an episode since episode two, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the methodology was funny. It's like I had suggested that maybe you just listen to yourself and talk along with yourself. But oh, that didn't work out God. so good. Yeah, yeah. So Stomp was like, so we were talking about it, and Stomp's like, well, why don't you just listen al- along and then repeat what you said and then I'll splice it together magically. And I was like, so I couldn't do it. So I had to basically like transcribe just my audio and like the, the amount of ums and like mumbling that I was going through. It was like impossible. So I tried to use Siri. So I tried to use Siri to pick up my words and it was like, it was like gobbledygook. I don't even know what it was. So, oh, really? Yeah. So That's an interesting approach. I, yeah. It didn't work. So anyway. Anyway, but... Um, you have you have some of the bullets and some of the basic stuff we talked about because we talked about a lot of good stuff. Know, so hopefully we can capture that yeah, again. So we're not going to miss much. But uh, well, so why don't we just start off with breaking news about your cat situation? So everybody wants yeah. you to get, get them up to speed on what's going on with the cats. Well, our sweet little Aria passed a couple of weeks back, and um, it was it was nice. And thank you everybody for reaching out and sending your notes and texts and emails and everything else. And um, we actually just got her ashes back just the other day. Can, came in this little tin with like roses and little kitties on it and this thing so she's she's back with us in this little teeny teeny tea-sized tea bag sized bag of ashes it's sort of weird that's all that's all the ashes that were produced <laughs> it it's about the size of a tea bag maybe a little bigger it's very odd looking at it like oh hey aria yeah. what are you going to do with them there she is what's the plan i i think we're just going to hold on to them you know it's the first time we've ever done that, and certainly the first time I've ever done it. And um, we were originally thinking about, you know, bringing her somewhere and tossing her to the wind. 
but I think I don't know. We'll probably just hold on to her. Well, does uh, well maybe next time when Mrs. Stomp <laughs> goes to Disney World, you can you can sprinkle the ashes in Disney. Yeah, <laughs> I guess that's the thing <laughs> on one of the one of the epic rides. Yeah. Really, Isn't that yeah. nasty. Uh, yeah, what? yeah, Space Mountain. You, can go, you know, people behind you can get a dust full of a face full of um, Aria dust. <laughs> Aria. <laughs> I'm sure that's happened. Yeah. That's pretty nasty. Yeah, I don't know. But hey, anything goes at Disney. Exactly, exactly. So, um, <laughs> and then that's what else funny. has got you? So you have additional cat news that you got to share. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've posted a couple of pictures, but we have Daphne now. She's she's a one-year-old uh, female cat, and she joined us like almost immediately after Aria passed, and it was somewhat unintentional we didn't plan to have it be so like back to back um but it just it's just the way it worked out and she is just a little spitfire running around we actually had a session the other night which was hilarious she loves the studio and we had a few guests in-house and she was just all over them and then she was crashed out behind um the speaker and uh she's a doll but uh so she's another tuxedo cat so now we have the executive producer and Daphne, who's the, I guess, the assistant executive producer. <laughs> yeah. How does, so how does the executive producer feel about the, the new addition? It, it's a lot better. Uh, you know, my wife and I were talking about this the other night. Um, there was a lot of tension in the house with Aria for some reason. And we we're almost wondering, maybe there are some vets out there that can fill us in on this, but I wonder if the cats could sense that she was ill and she was dying or something. It was just this weird tension. And that's all gone. And, you know, there's the typical cat stuff where if, like, Daphne comes too close to Arya, she'll swat her and stuff like that. But nothing like the tension that was in the house beforehand. It's very interesting. Well, good luck with the... So now yeah. you have the executive producer, which is the senior cat that is always roaming around, and then you have the assistant <laughs> producer that seems to be one... That doesn't seem to be camera shy either. So good luck with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for all the future guests, we hope you love cats because Daphne's going to be all over you. <laughs> right, yeah. You should post up a picture of the... Oh, have you posted a picture on, on the, uh, the uh, Instagram yet? I think so. Yeah, up on the story. Okay. One or two, but nothing major. But uh, yeah, I'll do that. All right. Well, the crazy cat diaries continue here. And I stomp, just let Mrs. Stomp know <laughs> that I have purchased 101 um, ways to use a dead cat book. So I'll be sending that to you guys for Christmas. <laughs> now, is this a, like a full-bodied dead cat or is this an ashy cat? Yeah, you cat messed it up. You were supposed to get the cat stuff so that you could do stuff with it, but you've got ashes. So anyway, you can just, you can plan for the executive producer's demise someday. Okay. So anyway, well, um, awesome. just to be happy. Yeah. And just to um, change topics, I got some feedback on the show, which I hate, but um, very close friend of mine, that may or may not live with me. She gave me some feedback, and she said that <laughs> she said that she, I don't laugh enough. And she said that um, she loves when you laugh. So apparently, I have to start <laughs> laughing more. That's all I do, though. That's all I do, though. According to my wife, she's like, "All you do is laugh. You're so giggly." Yeah. Eh, whatever. I don't know. So I'm supposed to laugh more. Hey. So you. That's your job is to make me laugh. All right. That's that's a hard task, but. Uh, you're the anchor of the show, so you're you're deep in thought all the time. Straight and you gotta keep things flowing. So yeah, makes sense. I'll do my best. I know when I do get you laughing that I'm I'm on target. Yes. Yeah, exactly. 
except for that tick joke uh, that uh, you'll hear in the the next episode. <laughs> there was no laughing after that one. Yeah, Ooh. yeah exactly. Well, <laughs> anyway, um, so I guess we are on to... Um, typically we would do like sponsor and coffee info, but we don't have any info on coffees and stuff. But I think before we even get to that, didn't you, I had in my notes here, you wanted to talk about, um, catalytic converters. You had some, some sort of rant on that. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. You know, this is really funny since we're recutting this. I I was trying to think if we had talked about that in the Ken episode or if this was this is like this reminds me of remember Inception yep the movie Inception Mm -hmm. when towards the end Leonardo and Ken Watanabe are sitting at the table as old men and they're like why are we here yeah (laughs) what are we supposed to talk about exactly (laughs) that's what's happening right now like oh yeah catalytic converters So, yeah, I uh, dug up some research about cats and actually I just got my truck fixed today and I I was picking the um, mechanic's brain about it. Like he's saying that it's a lot of the Fords that are getting their catalytic converters ripped out like the Ford truck. So that was interesting. Not that like Tacomas or any other cars aren't susceptible to this, but there are a couple things you can do to try to prevent people from ripping off your catalytic converters while you're. Uh, parked at the trailhead for several hours. Uh, the cat's part of the muffler system. The exhaust system is supposed to purify some of the exhaust or whatever. But they're being ripped off and sold for big money because of the uh, the metallic content on the inside, I suppose. Um, so, long story short, here are a couple tips. You can get a high-temperature colored bright paint and just spray the hell out of your catalytic converter. And what that'll do is just basically deter them because they'll look at it and say, oh my God, I'm not going to sand all that paint off of this one. Let's go to the next car. You can also get like a Dremel or some other small tool and etch in the VIN number, the vehicle identification number, onto the the catalytic converter itself. That would be another way to uh, dissuade them from ripping it out. And thirdly, the hardcore method, and this is what I'm going to do actually for my truck, you get um, a steel plate and have a mechanic uh, spot welded on so they, they just literally can't get into it. And they're going to look at it and say, oh, f- screw this. Let's move on. So a couple little tips there if you want to save your catalytic. Yeah, it's interesting. and, and it, it is. It, it may sound a little paranoid, but like they, they had probably, I think up north, there was at least three or four situations with different parking lots. And I know when I... When I was out on that hike on the Mahoosic Range with my friend Tom, we got picked up in Grafton Notch by uh, Mara, who runs this um, shuttle service. And I'll, I forget the name of her shuttle service, but I'll link that in the show notes. She's definitely good to use. Um, but she was telling us that, like, I think the day before she picked us up, that there was a big issue at the Appalachia parking lot and that they had gotten, like, I guess a couple of catalytic converters out of cars there, but I think they ended up arresting one of two of them. I think it was, yeah, I, I don't know exactly what the detail is, but like there was for a while, there was a lot of issues with uh, with people getting their their catalytic converters stolen. So it's it's worth it if you're going to be, um, you know, if you're going to be up there. And it also is like it kind of goes back to what I was saying about like trailhead. Um, I guess planning for trailhead issues with like making sure you have a shovel, making sure that you have 
a um, like a booster pack for jump starting your car, and then the other thing is making sure that you have like AAA um, service or whatever the equivalent is for your um, your vehicle. So you just can't be too conservative when it comes to that stuff because you're, you're leaving your car for 12 10 12 hours in a remote parking lot and then you come back especially this time of the year when it gets dark early you, you got to have a plan if mm-hmm. something goes wrong yeah and according to my mechanic it takes less than five minutes for them to rip this thing out so they're they're gone before they even start um i guess the newer cars like audis and a few others are actually making a net uh, screen that covers the whole thing so you don't have to worry about it but for older cars it's a big issue yeah yeah, yeah. who knew Stomp's tip of the day very good I'm impressed so we've <laughs> <laughs> uh, got a couple sponsors don't we we do yeah so you want to you want to run through those yeah, let's uh, talk about Nick. Nick Grillo, he's a friend of the show. He is a general contractor that serves New Hampshire. He lives up in the North Country here. He does decks, additions, remodeling windows, doors, fully insured. His number is 603-325-1661. Give him a shout if you need anything done. He's one of the best around. And then, of course, we have Reckless uh, Rec- at Reckless Brewing uh, on Insta. A special thanks. Uh, you'll enjoy the best food, craft beer, and fun just 15 minutes from Franconia, Notch, and many of the 4,000-footers in less than 10 minutes from the Five Corners. And just to refresh her on where they are, you can find their brews. Uh, with Thanksgiving coming up, this might be handy. You can find them at Franconia Market, Little, Little Town Brews in Littleton, Local Basket Con- Concord, um, Chase Street Market in Plymouth, Capital Beverages Concord, The Beer Store Nashua, Burt's Better Beer and Hooks It, Cask and Keg, Keg Meredith, and then Mike's favorite, uh, the Beverage Craft Beer and Soap Company in Wolfborough, where you can get your soap and beer at the same shot. Yeah, I got to check that place out. <laughs> I'm very curious about that. <laughs> uh, it's all right. So. All right. Let's get rolling on this thing. This is going to be a fun episode. Actually, we're getting a lot of feedback about this topic. So this should be a good one. Very good. Um, So should I get into the show summary, or is there anything else we got to cover? That's all I have that I can recall from the the lost episode. Well, there was one of the... There was one of the... (laughs) One of the topic here that um, we did do, oh. we did cover is, remember I had promised I was going to give you the background story? Oh, 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 you could have let it slip, but I'm glad you're bringing it yeah, up. Yeah, do yeah, it. I'm just referencing my notes. You promised. I did promise. So I had told, remember we had, we got some, we got sponsored by Giant Moon Penis and... Of course, that had to be the episode where, like, my cousin Janine was on, and I had to share that with all, you know, my family members and stuff. So I'm sure I'm going to have to explain the whole thing on Thanksgiving. But if any family members are listening, basically, <laughs> I think that the person that sent us the giant moon penis coffee donation um, is probably Stomp knows us from, like, back in the day when we were in, like, a small private Facebook group that was hiking-focused. Yeah. And I would think. I think out of that group, the giant moon penis was born as a as a sort of a social media meme, and mm-hmm. I I don't even know how somebody had posted a picture of a giant moon, and then in front of the moon was 
a person's giant penis. So it became like this joke where every once in a while someone would comment and someone would add that picture or whatever. And we, you know, it was very juvenile stuff that I really didn't participate in that much. But what ended up happening was that um, as time went by, like different people that were in this group, anytime anybody would put like a, um, a Facebook survey, you know how you can like do a poll and then people can vote and they can like add choices to say like what's your favorite color like (laughs) green red and you can do hit a little plus sign that says like oh i want to add yellow and vote for it so people anytime someone would put a poll up in the different hiking groups you know what's your favorite snowshoes or whatever like somebody would inevitably add the option of voting for the giant moon penis as your favorite whatever so (laughs) everybody would used to like vote for giant movie so now this has become this thing where um even like non-hiking groups it's just sort of out in the social media universe that anytime there's a poll like that phrase will pop up and it's sort of become this mainstream thing which is kind of goofy that it started from this dumb little new hampshire hiking group but um <laughs> i think that it is, is, it's like viral i don't know if it's viral but it's pretty well known like anybody that's been in in hiking groups on Facebook would definitely have seen it because it was a crew of people that were using it quite a bit. But um, yeah, I think somebody mm-hmm. must have known us from that that time. So that's how, that's why they sent it over. Because I think when you send coffee over, you can just say whatever name you want, and they must have done that. That's mm. a sort of a tongue in cheek sort of humor thing. Yeah, it was funny. Yeah, how'd that? Uh, what do you think of that NPR plug with Giant Moon Penis? How'd that go? Any comments about that? I, I thought you, this was pretty funny. What do you? What do you remember mean? that? Like, remember it was like uh, I did like this two minute long monologue. Oh, yeah. that NPR might do and. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that was that was great. That's your, I feel like you do have like a career in voiceover. That was great. Yeah. That was fantastic. Yeah, that was top tier. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> High quality content there. So, yeah, good stuff. Yeah, nothing like a stupid inside social media joke to, to take off. So. <laughs> anyway, all right. Oh. So tonight we are going to let Stomp is going to be the star of the show. So he and our friend Andy Cannon are going to teach us how to deal with injury prevention and treatment. So these guys are experts in this topic because of their background in physical therapy. So uh, much like Stomp, Andy is also a renaissance man, and he has many talents in addition to physical therapy, including being one of the early OG Reckless Brewing team members. Um, So Andy was in the mix in the early days of Reckless when uh, the beer was being sold from a shed. So he was nice enough to join Stomp on a segment to share some of his tips for staying healthy um, and, you know, anything to do with physical therapy. And then later on the show, we will um, attempt to get caught up on some recent search and rescue news. And we'll try to clean out some of the White Mountain and New Hampshire history topics that we haven't been able to get to. Although I'm not making any promises on that one. But I'm Mike. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm Stomp. Let's get started. Very good. So, um, beer talk, Stomp. What are you, what are you drinking? Um, well, nothing at the moment, but I think I was drinking a Reckless Stout at the time when we were, yeah. So, I have to say, Jen um, uh, Adams, thank you very much for leaving that at the office. And uh, it was delicious. But at the at the moment, it's like... What is it? Just past one o'clock. So, mm, I'm just thinking about that stout. But 
What were you drinking? Some lame Bud Light I was, seltzer? I was. Remember, so I had that um, Bud Light seltzer mango. So I, I had like no beer. I just Honestly, with COVID, like, and I'm working from home, like I am just in my house 24. I, I wake up in the morning, I go running. <clears throat> And I get yeah. my sort of outdoor fix, and then I'm in the house like during Monday through Friday, like I barely ever leave, <laughs> other than yeah. running. But um, so I haven't gone out to the store to get any new beer. But I had, I had two Bud Light seltzers. So the previous show, I drank the mango one, and then I said I was going to throw the black cherry one in the trash. But I think I drank that one too on another show, and then I have yeah. So I think I was drinking the black cherry um, Bud Light seltzer. So mm. that was it. Those Good are stuff. gone and they'll never come back again. Yeah. And, and I think before we move on, um, I want to make sure that we thank everybody for the donations because of the new gear. I know we might have touched upon that, but we've since used the new gear that we purchased for live in-house recording. And it's just working out fantastic. We had two guests here the other night. Sounds fantastic. You'll hear that soon. Um, so very, very exciting. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. It's cool to see like the Woodpecker Studio is actually like it's got people in there and stuff. It's pretty pretty neat. Yeah, it's neat. Yeah, I'm really glad the sound is solid too. Um, so definitely let us know what you guys think when you hear it. Yeah, you know what you need to do, Stomp, is like get those like tall candle um, holder things. Like remember um, when Nirvana did like their unplugged Kurt Cobain and they had that they had that. Oh light? yeah, yeah. You got to get that set up in the Woodpecker Studio when you got guests in. Oh, wouldn't it? Yeah, that'd be cool. Um, how about doing like a complete live thing here sometime or another? We'll have to figure out how to branch out into live. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. I'm not sure how it works. I don't know either. We got to do video too. Although like really like who wants to, see, I mean, you're better looking than I am, but I don't think anybody wants to see our faces. So. <laughs> My telly Savala's bald head. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that, but we do. Supposedly we got to get into video, so. Yeah. Anyway. But um, any recent hikes, anything you've been up to? Oh, boy, yeah. Let's see. I was doing the um, East Pond Loop, I believe, was the last thing I did. And um, that was that was nice. The road's still open, thank God. So we went up to Tripoli Road up in, from the Waterville side. And, you know, if anybody's going to do East Pond Loop for, from Tripoli Road, take it from 93. Don't go Waterville because that Waterville uh, Livermore Road entry is the worst four or five miles ever, just potholes and you name it so it was it was a drag getting there definitely hit 93 but east pond's beautiful right now uh just a little bit of hint of frost and uh ice here and there but uh beautiful late fall day awesome well i am yeah. uh, i'm still picking away at the honeydew list here so i haven't been doing any hiking but we got to get there's a couple things we got to get going one is um I want to grab you, and we'll talk about it, but I want, I want to try to do that Mowgli hike in the next couple of weeks, and then I also want to get yeah. out to, I've got a section of the Appalachian Trail in New Hampshire that i got to close out, which is um, Hanover up to the Dartmouth Skiway. I don't know how many, how many miles that is, but mm -hmm. I want to try to close that out. But then we've got to yeah. book that um, Hiking Buddies hike, so I'm going to get that put out in the next yeah. couple of days, I think. And that'll just be basically like if you're a beginning hiker and you're interested in, in joining me and Stomp, you know, we'll figure out a nice location to go to. I don't know. Do you have any ideas where, That'd be where fun. we want to go? Go up Greenleaf or something? Or I don't know. 
I don't know. Maybe it depends on the the response. I mean, uh, I don't have a good sense of who's on Hiking Buddies. I've checked out a little bit, but um, maybe it depends on who responds and what their skill level is. I don't know. Yeah, it's tricky because you got to say like some. You got to say like, okay, we're doing this hike, and then people will say like, oh, I want to do that hike because I think a lot of people are working on lists and stuff. So, yeah. Well, maybe some uh, medium challenge hike. I don't know, Southern Prezi. Yeah, we could do I that. Jackson, Webster, something. So, all right, we'll figure that out. But be on the lookout for yeah. the hiking buddies. We'll throw something on there, and we'll we'll just call it the uh, the the slasher buddy hike or something with with Stomp and uh, Mike. Yeah, that sounds great. Very cool. And then I think we're gonna dump into your segment in a second here, Stomp. But the only other note that I had was winter hiking so i know we did the 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 two segments on winter hiking but is there anything that anything that we missed that was bugging you i got one thing i wanted to call out but i didn't know if you had anything oh man i did have something but i can't remember what it was (laughs) back to the inception moment yeah yeah i'm sorry about that um but i did have one Uh, one thing so again like the whole trailhead thing around making sure you got all your I'm super paranoid about like getting back and like not being able to move my car and stuff. So just making sure you have everything is like the big thing that I, I'm stressing to people. But the other thing that we didn't cover was, and again, like make sure you have your compass and your map and all that stuff. I get it. But um, with the electronics, I have like a system that I use that I, I don't think I covered this. So I, I use, I always bring like four, four to six hand warmers with me. And I will open the hand warmers right when I get to the trailhead, and I'll I'll give it a little shake. I usually have two of them. I'll put one in my front pocket, and then I put the other one inside my um, chest pocket. And I'll Mm -hmm. typically, like, I have, like, a plastic bag, and I'll throw the hand warmer in along with my phone. And then um, that way the hand warmer is keeping my phone warm during the hike so i don't have to worry about it because i think if your phone gets exposed to really cold conditions the battery can drain really quickly so that's sort of my safety net is i'll throw in one or two of those hand warmers and the other thing too about the hand warmers is you do want to make sure that you expose those to air a little bit because i have put them in like small bags before and they're not as effective for whatever reason so um but i do think like if you have any electronics just make sure that you um you know, utilize those hand warmers to, to position them so that they're close to the electronics so that they stay warm. Even if you're shoving it in, in your backpack or something, it's it's worth it to have that hand warmer right next to the phone. Mm-hmm. I, I think I remember what it was now for mine. It was it was a contributor, actually, a listener. They said that they um, really enjoy having a, a dry towel in their pack oh, yeah. for when they get to the top, they can just use it to dry off and get warmer again so you know what i apologize my my method is I, I keep notes for everything and then after the episode i delete them so i may have to keep them for a couple more episodes while you're my co-host mike yeah yeah because i'm <laughs> definitely not reliable so um the good news is so like pa- I, I do keep like copious notes so <laughs> that's good yeah. oh good stuff yeah. all right so the only thing i have to say about this segment is that um pts when they go through school uh, learn a foundational level of material, and then from there, everybody experiences a different route through their professional career, and they learn different things and have different approaches. This conversation was really nice for me because Andy and I seem to be on the same page in terms of how we approach issues and um, you know 
you know, provide treatment and this and that. So I hope you enjoy it. And um, we'll come back at the other side of this to discuss a couple things. It's time for Slasher's Guest of the Week. All right, everybody. So tonight we have Andy Cannon here. Uh, Mike couldn't join us tonight, so the two of us are just going to be spitballing about hiking and physical therapy and all kinds of good stuff. So, uh, Andy, tell me, you live locally, I guess, huh? Uh, A little bit of both. So uh, my wife and I have split our time from southern New Hampshire, a town called Atkinson, and up in Bethlehem. Okay. Okay. So we do our best to spend more time north and less time south, but uh, the demands of life sometimes just doesn't allow that. Yeah. So are you a native or did you move up to New Hampshire from some other location? I moved to New Hampshire when I met my wife. So that was about 35 years ago. Oh, excellent. That's a, that's a long run. Congratulations. That's great. Yeah, it's worked it so far. So good, as they say. (laughs) All right. So, when you're up in Bethlehem, you also work at uh, our sponsor for the podcast, Reckless. How'd you start working with them? Yeah, that's a, that's a pure happenstance event. So the head brewer, Ian, and the brains of the operation, Marlena, uh, they're the two principals. Mm-hmm. Reckless for their first year of operation um, was in a 12 by 12 shed in Ian and Marlena's backyard on our property line. And so the four of us, along oh, with wow. Annie the dog, uh, was reckless for year one. Yeah. So selling beer out of the shed, brewing beer out of the shed all through the winter, heaters mm-hmm. going outside, live music outside, uh, my wife parking cars to not try to piss off the neighbors and um, me sitting on the back steps with a cash box on my lap. And so uh, <laughs> that was uh, year one of reckless. Right from the start, huh? That's excellent. So how'd you meet uh, Ian and Marlena? Neighbors. Uh, Just neighbors. Yeah. Uh, You know, Ian lived well before Reckless was the name of the brewery. Reckless is his license plate. So when uh, you see a guy coming and going next door with a license plate that says Reckless, um, you end up having a conversation. So (laughs) we talked to him at length. He had a couple of his kids were young then. So we spent some time with the kids, um, did some fun outdoor stuff together and Marlena soon sauntered along and uh, kind of the rest is history, I guess. Yeah. And how many years ago was that? Uh, Reckless this past Columbus Day, which was what, a couple of weeks ago and now. Um, this past Columbus Day, it was five years from from starting at the shed. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Because I, I came in there for the first time about a year ago when um, – Carry Out Stout first made its debut, yeah. and um, I came in with the captain of uh, PEMI, and we just tried it out because you guys have been gracious enough to donate to the team and stuff like that, which is fantastic. But um, I mentioned that because my wife and I just went there maybe three, four weeks ago, and I couldn't get over the um, the new brewery and just the addition. Yeah. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about that, just that whole process? Because it's amazing. Yeah, I, I, if you, I, the people who come in, they'll, they'll look at the brewery and they'll see it as, you know, if they come in one year apart, they'll see it as uh, every year, every time they come, it's different, right? I mean, every year it gets bigger. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, that building, it. when we were open that first year in the shed, it got 
it was a fantastic scene, but quickly got out of control uh, in terms of the amount of people and the drive and the need and the desire for us to expand in the community. So we uh, um, closed down for a year and uh, they bought that building downtown. We spent five, six months, six months renovating it and then Mm -hmm. opened up in the spring of that next year. So that's been a a progression. The kitchen's tripled in size. The brewery has gotten out of the basement and it has increased by 20 fold, probably from what it was. Um, And it's pretty fantastic. Did you guys utilize the whole COVID restriction and downtime at all to finalize it and build it up? We we were, we were up and yeah, we were up and going, but, uh, pretty strongly before the COVID stuff. So I spent some of COVID doing beer delivery. Um, we were delivering beer to people's houses and doing takeout food. And so hmm. we had to close down uh, in restaurant operations, in brewery operations, but okay. we're still able to brew, build up a stockpile. And the biggest challenge is even with, uh, we have a five barrel system now, but the biggest challenge is brewing enough beer to have enough beer. How did you guys do the delivery? Did you have like a spacesuit on and <laughs> uh, gloves and a mask? Uh, yeah, I bet <laughs> gloves and a mask, and, and usually putting it on the steps and giving it a knock, giving them a thumbs up, and yeah, like uh, the fifties. Get it, and uh, <laughs> yeah, like the milkman. Yeah, same <laughs> idea, right? I was bear man, I guess. <laughs> now, are you still delivering, or is that somebody else's role? <clears throat> Uh, no, we don't deliver anymore now that we're wide open and going at it. Uh, well, yeah, what up. I meant by that is to all the local stores. I'm sorry. Oh, like just oh regionally. sorry. Yeah, distribution. Yeah. So the, yeah. the way that it works is we can distribute within the state of New Hampshire on our own. Uh, we don't have to mm-hmm. have an intermediate distributor. So um, <clears throat> Jules, who is one of the people who's been with us pretty much from the very beginning, um, who kind of worked her way up to is a brewer as well. And she's taken mm-hmm. over a lot of the distribution. So yeah, we're they're driving uh, a van around uh, New Hampshire, Marlena most of the time, and and Drew and uh, Jules uh, driving around delivering beer all over the state. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that congrats, man. It's really taken off. It's fun to watch uh, from the outside. It's fun to be there. Um, that's the yeah. uh, <clears throat> that's the line I use. Right, that when it stops being fun, I stop doing it. Um, Right, but at this right. point, it's still, still is a lot of fun. Yeah, well, I, is physical therapy still a lot of fun? <laughs> uh, believe, believe it or not, physical therapy is is still a lot of fun. I'm a fortunate guy. Um, yeah, tell me about that. How'd you get into it? Where'd you go to school? I mean, the whole thing. Yeah, I I I uh, got into it from hurting my ankle in high school and having the the physical therapist who worked with the disabled kids at the high school come to my house. She was a friend of my mom's and. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a very blue collar town and, um, you know, when I, I was a relatively smart kid and played a lot of sports. So of course I was going to be a gym teacher and that was my destiny. She came to the house and it seemed kind of interesting. And back in the day, it's slightly different than what Mike's going through with his kids. Now I applied to one yeah. college, got in and I went to Northeastern <laughs> and oh, nice. uh, back, okay. yeah, back in the day when it was a bachelor's degree. So did my five years with co-op and so I'm coming up to f- this, uh, I'm, I guess technically I'm in my 40th year of uh, clinical practice. I went into the process of getting board certified in sports because it's my niche really. So I did do the SCS. So I'm in about my s- eight, 17th, 18th year of being board certified in sports. 
Gotcha. Yeah, I I came out with a master's, and um, you know, I I see all these people with the doctorates, but uh, yeah, the master's was enough for me. <laughs> master's was enough for me, and um, I, I I I was entirely supportive of the move to a master's degree. I don't know if I'm all that supportive of a of the move to a doctorate, but fortunately, not my decision. Yeah, I'm, I'm in that same category, actually. Um, but but that's a whole other conversation. Um, I'm hoping we can sort of like hone this into a, a discussion about how this works with hiking and some of the issues hikers yeah. may see or, you know, things of that nature. Do you have a hiking background? Are you a uh, big hiker? Uh, uh, you know, I, I guess I'm a big hiker. Um, you know, I, I ran, I ran track in college uh, on a very competitive team where I struggled to be anything of relevance for four years. And, uh, mm-hmm. that was relevant for maybe a half a year out of the four. Yeah. Um, but I had a, I had a great time and got out of college and took off cross country with a buddy of mine. I lived in the back of the Volkswagen square back and, uh, went camping and hiking, uh, for the really first time in my life when I was 21 or 22. And so yeah. needless to say, um, I've been hiking about 40 years now, rock and ice climbing for about 25 to 30 and, mountaineering pretty much the same amount of time and uh it's mm-hmm. enjoyable i don't climb as, as i don't technically climb as much as i used to my my climbing partner for uh mm-hmm. 23 years uh, kind of gave it on up and i didn't have the gumption to uh, try to climb with somebody else i don't really have an interest in in cutting trusting my life on the other on the sharp end to somebody i don't necessarily know so i get it i get it watching it from search and rescue that that end you know it's like um i always draw the analogy between airplane safety like they're they're safe until they're not safe <laughs> like climbing right. comes across to me as that like yeah it's pretty safe but when it's not it's like those outcomes are pretty rough yeah the the guy i climbed with for many years and myself we kind of you know, came into the, the activity together, um, learned mm-hmm. together, you know, where I'm, I'm, I'm old enough that I didn't climb indoors until I had been climbing 15 or 16 years. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and so, you know, I learned, uh, outdoors, Pawtuckaway, uh, I didn't go much over to North Conway area. My, our, our spot was Cannon. Um, we did a lot of stuff. Oh, on, the big cliffs. Uh, yeah. We did a bunch of stuff on Cannon. That's where kind of our go-to and, Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been enjoyable. Uh, and again, now it's, it's my wife's a big hiker. She's been a, a runner, a hiker her whole life. So, um, now it's mostly uh, running and hiking these days. What percentage do you share at reckless versus your PT work? How do you divide the two out? Uh, I head up to reckless pretty much, uh, any of the spare time I have. So my PT life that I've been lucky to have is that, uh, I only do clinical practice currently about two afternoons a week. Uh, and mm-hmm. what I am full-time is I'm full-time at Merrimack college. Uh, so I'm a, an associate clinical professor there. And so I teach work as the team PT for athletics. Oh, wow. Great. Uh, so I work in the athletic training room with the student athletes and mm-hmm. then, uh, do a little bit of research, simple research with the undergraduates. And so, uh, that setting is such that, <clears throat> you know, the semesters are, 14, 15 weeks long, there's two a year. That leaves a lot of time to be, to be North. Um, so we're reckless a lot, uh, pretty much every Friday through, um, Sunday. My wife's a high school teacher. Um, so again, we have a little, a schedule that kind of allows us the opportunity to do a little bit more 
um, which is great. Yeah, two educators. That's great. Now, when it comes to uh, hikers themselves, have you ever worked specifically with somebody that came in and said, hey, I just, I was up here on this summit and I slipped or I did this or that, and they presented with any injury that you've worked with? In your line with search and rescue, you're right, you deal with traumatic injury. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for the most part. And the stuff that I see, yeah, the stuff I see most of the time is is overuse, right? So people who have come in and, you know, I've years ago, I've, I've certainly have seen people from trauma, people who have fallen and fractured an ankle, rock climbing, and mm-hmm. I've seen them after that, but, <clears throat> and then gotten them back to that activity. But most of what we I see over the years, it's hiking related is overuse, you know, they're connected, right? I mean, you can't separate them out. A lot of times overuse injury, or I should say traumatic injury can come from an overuse beginning. Uh, They get tired, they get fatigued, they're not paying attention. They have a little pain in their knee. They're not thinking about other stuff. And then all of a sudden they trip and fall and and break something, hit their head or something along that line. So they're connected, but most of what I see is is overuse. And again, I would have to say my experience mirrors what the literature says that, you know, the majority of, of hiking related overuse injuries is legs, you know, lower extremity mm-hmm. versus um, upper extremity or arm or trunk stuff. So yeah, a lot of it is, is foot, ankle, knee, hip that I see. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, you know, when we're on missions, we don't really get to dissect what the root causes, but that's an interesting angle. Like was your slip and fall related to an underlying repetitive stress injury or was it not? We don't really get to that depth of a level, but we had a, um, a hiker on, I don't know if you heard or not, but uh, Steve Mason, who was talking about sort yes. of repetitive stress and just like, you know, he's um, fighting for every day. He's just sore constantly and everything like that. And that's a really interesting thing that you bring up because I have a shopping list here of different things that we might touch upon, but they're mostly, um, you know, things that happen unexpectedly, um, whether it be just a generally, generally a slip. I mean, for the most part, that's what I'm seeing on the trail, but how many people are out there with these repetitive stress injuries? I mean, probably a huge amount. You know, my, my wife, uh, again, my wife is far tougher and a far better athlete than I am. And, uh, you know, she's picked up, um, hiking more here in the last five or six years and has been banging out the 4,000 footers every year. Um, for a while now. So she's on a bunch of the Facebook groups for, you know, Mm -hmm. groups here, there and everywhere. And she always says to me, you can't believe the number of people who are posting about questions on injury. And it's 90. And I look at them with her sometimes it's 90 to 95% overuse injury, right? Because, you know, our, and you know, this as well, right? Our healthcare system, Mm -hmm. if, if you and I grabbed our chest and had a heart attack right now, hopefully we don't. Um, our healthcare system is designed around managing that, right? The golden hour, getting us to the emergency room, cardiac intervention, cardiac rehab, surgery if needed. That's what our healthcare system works on, right? It, it works on quantity of life, right? It means keeping us alive. <clears throat> it really, as I'm sure you've seen in your, in your profession, it really drops the ball on quality of life, right? It doesn't really, mm-hmm. it's not designed to deal with those things that niggle at you and limit your ability to do the stuff you want to do. You go to your primary care, you go to your nurse practitioner. It's it's, it's tough not to get it just appropriately. Right. And try to get a uh, an order for PT for prevention. I mean. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. So good luck with that. Right. Right. So uh, 
All right, let's talk about that. So to me, it seems as though the um, the foot injury, the knee injury, the hip injury in you know order of priority, I, I would say that uh, I've probably seen more foot injuries with hikers and then knees maybe a, a close second. Would you agree yep. with that? No yeah, problem. I mean, I, I think if you look at, I mean, everybody, again, prior to coming and talking, I did some digging on uh, here, there, and everywhere. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's some good data out there, and there's lots of not good data out there. And, you know, there's no one place to go to, to be confident that everything's correct. But certainly, if you look at it, I think the number I kept coming across was foot and ankle was 40%, 30%, 40 45% of all hiking-related injury. Um, so, that's a, so that's a big number. Um and I think anecdotally, if I look at the people I see, um, uh, I see a lot of knee. Um, so knee-related mm-hmm. injury, I think absolutely would be uh, a close second. Uh, and then after that, I think it's kind of a toss-up. You know, we can certainly have our our discussion later on about poles or no poles, um, mm-hmm. which is a, an interesting topic. Yeah, yeah. I have my thoughts about that, too. So I guess we should start with, um, let's talk about prevention. Like if, um, if it's knees and feet and then maybe, you know, hips and backs, it's the, this concept that we use in therapy called the kinematic chain and everything's connected and you, if you have muscular imbalance, it will impact all the joints straight up the line. Um, so what would you say to some hikers to prevent or mitigate some injuries down the line? knowing what you know about hikers. I mean, they're, they're using these, these primary movers like the quads and the hip flexors. And ultimately that's going to throw off their, their posture and their, uh, their overall joint health. Can you touch upon that? I, I think it comes to some kind of foundational concepts. And for me, it's the same. I think it probably consistent across any activity, not just hiking. And that is that, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and I, what I see is that very often, uh, the location of symptoms and the location of problems are separate, right? Uh, anybody right. that we they see, they believe that wherever it hurts is where the problem is. And we know sometimes that's true, but sometimes that's not true. So mm-hmm. I think first off, making people understand that is important. I think the most important thing I would say to anybody is let's say they go out for a weekend hike. Let's say they go up and they do, um, you know, Franconia Ridge, and let's say they, you know, go up falling waters, go across, come down bridle path, and it takes them six hours. Let's say they're they're moving along. Uh, that's six hours out of a week, and there's a lot of hours in that week. Um, so I, I think the first and foremost is it's probably more important what they do outside of the hike time than what they do during the hike time. Right. And so I, it's the you've seen it as well as I. It's the I guess you could call it the hiking weekend warrior right who oh sure if they're an adult in their 30s and 40s they're sitting more than likely they're sitting during the week they may be Mm -hmm. getting the gym they may not be getting to the gym so everything i see uh almost everything i see is an imbalance of load and tolerance Mm -hmm. so it's either that the tissue is not tolerant enough for an average load or the load exceeds whatever tolerance the tissue has. And that could be, you know, tendon, muscle, joint, whatever tissue we want to talk about. And the only way you build up tolerance is consistency. So I think the mm-hmm. biggest thing I would tell people is it takes time and you have to be consistent in your efforts. And that's going to make you more tolerant and give you more flexibility on the weekend to do more because 
you're made yourself more tolerant of that activity by what you've done during the week. That makes sense. Now, would that incorporate? Yeah, would that incorporate cross training or specific training for hiking? Well, I think a little bit of both, right? I think there's a foundational piece that is strength, and we never use the word stretching anymore because we've used the word stretching. Everybody tells you you're wrong because nobody because stretching is uh, identified as uh, old school, so we call it extensibility work, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but you know, you right. have the, the tissue's got to be able to move to work. Um, mm-hmm. so we have to get tissue lengthened. So that might be stretching. Um, they've got to be conditioned. And I think, you know, as with <clears throat> the other, another part of my background is I'm a, a CSCS, a certified strength and conditioning coach. So one of the things we talk about is general preparation and specific preparation, right? I mean, you can do general preparation by elevating your heart rate, uh, you know, stationary bike, elliptical, walking, running, you can do general preparation by general strengthening, and then you get closer to it. You talk about specific preparation, and that specific preparation might be more sport-specific activity, you know, getting yeah. getting on the step mill uh, at the gym, finding the parking garage or the building, wherever you might be, that has a flight of stairs you can get into, you know, thinking about putting a load on. Specificity of training, yeah. Yep, specificity of training, right? The, the uh the old said principle, right? Specific adaptations to impose demands. So uh, yeah. start getting generally fit. It doesn't matter what you do. And then think about what it is you want to do and start focusing your activity a little bit more on that, whether that be the lengthening or the extensibility you need to do that activity and to give yourself a little cushion of flexibility, the strength you need to do it, the cardiovascular ability you need to do it. And as you as you know, which is probably something you see in search and rescue a lot, the the mental focus and the mental toughness to do it. Mm. Yeah, you know what we see a lot of is just people gassing out. So that goes right yep. in line with this the the endurance and the cardiovascular aspect of it. A lot of folks yeah. come from say Boston for the weekend and have never hiked, and they just gas out halfway up, or they're on the way down, and boom. Yeah, I, my my friends make some of me make fun of me, right? Because uh, I always say every once in a while I want it safely, of course. Every once in a while, I want to t- I want to run the tank dry, so I know how I feel when the tank's dry. Right, um, and so and I think that I do that in a cautious way, and I think it's actually part of my preparation mm. um, to know how far down can the tank go and everything still feel okay. So, what what should hikers do when they're sitting in the car for two hours and they get to the trailhead? What's the first thing they should do to, to prepare? Well, I think the the first thing is to think about it depends on where you are, right? Let's say they're going to uh, the Hancocks, right? Great example. They go to the yeah. Hancocks, right? They park the car. Now they've got a, a couple of mile or so flat walk almost. So essentially, they've got a couple of mile of warm up, and then they decide that they're going to do it uh, counterclockwise. So they're going to going to bang their first right and start uphill. In a perfect mm-hmm. world, would be to get there and. And, you know, the same thing I would say to runners, if they're going to go out for a long run, run a mile, run a one mile loop, end up back at your house, take stock of everything. What feels good? What doesn't feel good? What feels tight? Stretch it. What feels not mobile? Mobilize a little bit. Kind of see how you feel and then Mm -hmm. get going. So in a perfect world, if you have a hike that you're starting on, that's not going to not going to have you go uphill right out of the gate. That's an easy answer because. Get in there till it gets hard. And then when you get there, put take off your pack, put it down, take stock. How do you feel? 
Um, mm-hmm. Anything you should be more aware of, anything you should be less aware of. Um, your free feet feel okay. Boots feel okay. Uh, pack feels okay. You know, what do you, everything, everything seems okay. I remember this, the schoolist thought used to be back in the day, uh, stretch first and then get moving. But that's changed a bit, hasn't it? Yeah, I, I actually, what we know <clears throat> is the only stretching that actually changes tissue extensibility is stretching mm-hmm. that's done separate from the activity. I don't mean separate, like at the same time, but at a separate time of day or a separate day. So, you know, stretching at night or stretching some other time to gain tissue extensibility <clears throat> is going to change. It's going to change it, right? We, the old rule of five to six reps, 20 to 30 second hold should be comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think the challenge is um, in a perfect world, which, boy, you know, everybody pulls into the parking lot. They're looking at all of everybody getting on the trail ahead of them. Um, <laughs> right. But, uh to get in the parking lot and say, I'm going to go for a five or 10 minute walk. I'm going to check for license plates in the parking lot. I'm going to walk down here. I'm going to walk over there. And then I'm going to come back. I'm going to see how I feel. And I'm going to stretch a little bit. Uh, and then I'm going to take off because I know I'm going right uphill. So, you know, if I could put one saying above the door of wherever I treat patients or talk to patients, uh, the saying would be the absence of symptoms is not the presence of health. And so when people get out of the car and feel good, that doesn't mean everything's okay. It just means they're not painful and symptomatic. Sometimes stretching can be a good way to get a deeper dive into how do I feel? I, stretching to me, I view stretching for me personally, and I think for my patients, I, I view it as diagnostic. Yeah, that's that's a great way to look at it. It gives them a sense of how they're doing. And this, of course, this isn't supposed to be the big PT plug, like everybody goes to your PT, but that's where PTs can be really helpful. Um, just education because a lot of people don't know how to stretch. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the same point you just made, right? I think stretching has two functions, right? Uh, again, passive stretching, which any anybody who listens to your show and talks about conditioning, they say, oh, passive stretching, nobody passive stretches. So that's why we call it extensibility, as I said before. But, you know, your mm-hmm. tissue's got to have length to function. And so we don't need a cross-country runner to be able to put their foot up over their head but we do need them to have enough extensibility in the tissue uh, so that it can do the job it needs to do and generate the force it needs to generate. So stretching can be therapeutic if it's done at a separate time as part of your general fitness program. Stretching can be diagnostic when done in and around activity to give you a heads up of how you're feeling. I think we can move on to mid-hike. Okay, so we stretched out, we're going at it. What should we be looking out for as hikers? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the thing I always talk to about people is trends, right? You know, your foot might hurt, your knee might hurt, your shoulder might hurt, but how is it trending, right? Are you going uphill so now your, your Achilles tendon is a little sore? So when the terrain changes, do, do the symptoms change, right? We know that when people are going downhill, their quads might get sore. People are going uphill, their, their calf, their Achilles, maybe even their lumbar spine might get sore. You want you would expect that when terrain changes, any discomfort or comfort for that matter may change. So the biggest thing I, I talk to people about is identifying are things getting better, are things getting worse? You know, you can have a sore foot, you can have a sore knee. You will attest to the fact that uh, similar to me, I don't think I have ever done any physical activity in my life where I have felt 100% great the entire time. Right, right. 
So we're going to have some symptoms. And the question is, are those symptoms normal? Have you had them before? Is it something you've experienced before? Mm -hmm. Or are they something that uh, is new? And if they are new, uh, do they change with the train? And are they trending towards worse or better? And if they're trending towards worse, uh, even though it's going to add minutes to your time, take a stop and See how you feel. Does it feel better after a little rest? Does it improve? Does it get worse if you rest? I think that's those are the sort of the advice I would pass on to people. And do you have a basic um, suggestion for what hikers should have in their pack? You know, thinking specifically for like these orthopedic injuries or, or aches and pains that may come up. You know, I think it's probably uh, some of the stuff that's not listed in your in the ten essentials or twelve essentials, right? But <laughs> that's where I was headed with this. <laughs> yeah. You know, what I would say to people is, what's your, what's your injury history, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look in your closet at home, is there a knee brace there? Okay, there's a knee brace there. Why is there a knee brace there? Well, I've hurt my knee three or four times. Okay, did that knee brace hurt? Help when that happened. Okay, then maybe you should throw that knee brace in your pack. Did you sprain your ankle right. a lot? It's in the bottom of the closet. Is it that old ankle brace you haven't used in two years because you haven't done that much in two years? Maybe that ankle brace should go in there. Um, you right, know, right. with my sports PT background, uh, and uh, spending a lot of time in the athletic training world, I never go on a hike without a roll of white athletic tape. Um, because I know I can use it to, uh, support my ankle. I can use it to support my knee. I can use it to, to do anything I might need to do with it. So, um, mm. you know, silly as it sounds, that's, I think most what they can put in their pack is what does their injury history indicate and what do the statistics indicate? statistics as you said indicate ankle injury you know you can you can have a a little off-the-shelf ankle aso brace that is 27 dollars on any place you want to get it and you throw it in your pack it weighs next to nothing and should you hurt your ankle or turn your ankle now you have a now you have an answer Hmm. i have an extra actual use for um athletic tape i i do carry it in my pack as well and at the um statewide training this year one of the members from another team parked fairly proximate to where the Blackhawk was. And mm. unfortunately, when the Blackhawk took off, a, a rock went right through the back windshield of this guy's car. So oh. <laughs> so to get him from Franconia back over the mountains, I broke out the old athletic tape to <laughs> tape up his window so it wouldn't shatter any further. Perfect. So there's another, yeah, another use for it. A uh, little side story there. Yeah. Now, how about getting down into the um, the gear itself? Any suggestions about boots and uh, packs, you know, fitting a pack or buying the right boot? What would you suggest in terms of that for the listeners? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's no, there's no lack of experts and near experts out on the internet that will, that will give that information. And I think for me, if you look at, if you look at the research on running shoes, um, you know, what running shoe results in the lowest injury rate in runners, Mm -hmm. right? You know, we get into this whole decision, whole discussion about, do they have a high arch supinated foot? Do they have a low arch pronated foot? They're not really positions, they're really motions, but, you know, should it be a, Mm -hmm. should you have this amount of drop, that amount of drop? Should you have a a absorbing shoe or stable shoe? And so the only thing that correlates from running shoes to decreasing risk of injury is when the person puts on that running shoe and says, Oh, that's comfortable. So as weird as it sounds, 
running shoe comfort as rated by the wearer is the only real firm piece of evidence that decreases injury. Therefore, okay. I think the same goes for hiking shoes, right? It just go. I think it just goes back to the same thing with hiking boots, right? You'll go and get a hiking boot, and I think people get talked into a lot of things. But I think people will get talked into, you know, what do you want to do? What's the hiking boot you want? And this is what you need. And they'll put it on. And I don't know about you, but I've had my fair share of hiking boots that shredded my foot yeah. the first couple of times. And I ended up either throwing them away or taking them back. And they felt comfortable then, but not after. So I think the if if we go along with the running analogy, the most pertinent thing for hiking boot or hiking shoe decreasing injury risk is the one that feels most comfortable to the wearer. Yeah. Now, how about this? This is a, a more complicated question. So I, I used to be a shoe dog at REI. So I'd be zipping yeah. back and forth, getting different shoes and things like that. Um, and I saw the evolution between, you know, trail runners and hiking boots and backpacking boots. And then all of a sudden the uh, born to run book came out and everybody was in the five fingers and then barefoot running and stuff like that. And there's this debate between whether you should be minimalist to actually work those muscles and joints and therefore have a stronger foot, or you should protect it with like a, a three-quarter last in a boot so that you're not absorbing all those forces and stretches and all this. So what's your take yeah. on that? So I think that's, that's a great question. So I think I, I have two takes on that, right? I, I think this is one of the few places in life where you can have it both ways. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you can you can separate from your hiking time, um, work on foot intrinsic strengthening, make those muscles, you know, as, as you know, and probably people listening don't know, you know, four layers of muscle on the bottom of your foot is a lot of muscle there. Um, and the whole concept of minimal shoe and, uh, you know, low drop and the, the Born to Run book was all about foot strength and building foot strength. But this comes back to load and tolerance, right? Um, yeah. If people are walking around all week at work in their regular work shoes and then decide they're going to go out and, you know, hike, go for a hike in a minimal hiking shoe or go for a hike in a low running shoe, is their foot, is their knee, is their ankle, is their hip going to tolerate that? Probably the load's going to out, outpace the tolerance. So yeah. if you're going to do that, there's got to be an awful lot of preparation of loading to make the tissue more tolerant. If you want to wear that big beefy hiking boot, there's nothing wrong with that. Your foot can get stronger outside of it. Work on foot strengthening during the week. And I think it comes back to what I mentioned before is kind of my belief that um, as we, as, and it's specifically as we get older, right? And you have memories. I have memories of getting up, doing something stupid when we were in our twenties and thirties and not batting an eyelash and feeling fine. And uh, as we get older, um, we have to pay to play, right? Yeah, and we can true. choose how to pay, right? We can choose right. how to pay. We can choose, we can pay ahead of time by taking time out of our week to stretch, to strengthen, to do general physical preparation, to do some of the stuff that's maybe not exciting. So we can pay that way or we can pay after the fact with injury, discomfort and, and worst case disability. But the odds of us not paying as we get older and stay active are slim. Um, we just have to choose how to pay. And I try to choose ahead of time um, right. by doing all the things that will make me less likely to get injured. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. Um, I, for one, go for the big boots and <laughs> the three-quarter last. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> just always having, 
Yeah, I've I've never trusted my ankles. First off, I mean, I don't know. That's my Achilles heel or my ankles. Yeah, the, the when again in looking at some of the literature, uh, one of the journals I go to a fair amount is the uh, Wilderness and Environmental Medicine. It's a it's a good journal to kind of pick stuff up on, and I think it's open access actually. I, I think, but uh, mm-hmm. there was something in there not that long ago that talked about ankle injuries by hiking shoe type. Wow, that would be interesting. Yeah, and interestingly enough, those kind of high to those medium to high hiking boots, you know, sort of the ones that most of those three quarter type boots had the highest rate of injury. Hmm. Yeah, yeah hmm, that's correct. That was my that was exactly my my thought. Hmm. Um, I'm not too sure why, uh, but that seemed to be the case. All right. Well, that's interesting. Something to dig into. Maybe we can do our own research on our listeners. <laughs> we'll set up a study. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, that's a good talk about boots. How about pack fit? I mean, there's there's some different theories about how to fit a pack to avoid back pain, shoulder pain. From a PT's viewpoint, what do you think? Well, I think from a PT viewpoint, it's relatively straightforward, right? You have to have the weight as close to your center of gravity as you can, and you've got to have as much fit on your hips as you can. Mm-hmm. When we look at pack fit, um, yeah, there aren't many. You don't see many people out there anymore with the with the old fashioned or the military fashion rucksack, right? Um, without right, right. Uh, without a waist belt um, or without a beefy waist belt. But at the end of the day, uh, the thing you can do to mitigate injury regarding pack fit more than anything else is to make sure that the pack is fit so that it's as close to your trunk as it can be, and as much of the mm-hmm. weight is on it, your hips as it can be. Now, what about dis- distribution? Some people say, I, I don't know the exact number, but like you said, I mean, 60% to the hip, 40 to the shoulders, or you know, a quarter to the shoulders, or I've heard all kinds of numbers. Uh, I, you know, I, would, I, I think I saw those numbers out there as well, and I would certainly, uh, personally, I would go as much as possible to the hip within comfort. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I can tell you that you know, some of my winter packs, I, I think I'm probably 80, 20, uh, on my hips yeah. because I, I, it's makes it easier, right? The, the more weight I have loaded further from my center of gravity, it's going to put that weight further out on the proverbial seesaw and, mm-hmm. uh, provide more load that my back and trunk has to control. So I try to keep it close. Yeah. You mentioned this earlier, but um, one way to take care of some of that loading on the legs, maybe poles, maybe not. What's your take on poles? Yeah, boy, <laughs> I find it interesting, right? And so, certainly um, it goes back to specificity of training and load tolerance, right? And again, I know I'm getting, I sound like a broken record, but to me, everything comes back to that. And um, you know, and I think most mm-hmm. people would will understand as well that our legs are designed to be weight-bearing, load-tolerating structures, and our arms are designed to be mobile and move. Um, they're not mm-hmm. designed to be connected to the ground. And so um, I understand if you look at the literature, there's no doubt that poles decrease load to your legs, right? I mean, I, I don't think that I don't think that that's a surprise by anybody's amount, especially downhill. You know, downhill pulls will will decrease the load to your quadricep muscle pretty significantly. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, 
It's putting load onto tissue that's not that tolerant of it. You're putting load onto your shoulder, onto your rotator cuff, onto your elbow, onto your wrist that doesn't get that load all all week long except for when you hike. And so to me, that screams as a potential problem. You know, I I think it's also terrain dependent and regionally dependent. You know, we've been – our older daughter lives out in Southern California and our our younger daughter lives in Denver – and so we'll go out and visit them from time to time and go hiking. And you go out to some of those hard-packed dirt trails. I think poles make a ton of sense. You, know, you come to the whites and you have uneven terrain everywhere, rocks everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. I think they can make sense for the right people if you're prepped and used, used to them. But I also think they can become a distraction um, to a lot of people. Yeah, well said. I, um, I have a different viewpoint too. I mean, when I first joined SAR, I used to use poles all the time, but then we were instructed to get rid of them because basically if you're on a litter, those poles be- can become, you know, daggers and poke people's eyes out yeah. and worse. So you had to really get rid of them. So for me personally, it was a really interesting training curve. Getting rid of them probably took me after 30 years of hiking and this and that and decades with poles, probably took me a good year and a half, two years to really get used to no poles. Um, yeah. It was a hell of a, yeah, it was really an interesting curve, but now it's like, uh, you know, it's fine without it. I don't miss them at all. And I, I connected also to my work with uh, some of the elderly and whatnot, because what I see with the elderly is when they start using an assistive device like a cane or a walker, they get used to it and they're not yeah. challenging their innate natural balance systems like, you know, the, you know, proprioception of the joints, uh, vestibular system in the inner ear and things like that. So I think there's a lot to be said for not using poles. And, and I think you may actually be a little bit safer without poles, you know, cause your body's more active. Yeah. You're, I, you're kind of preaching to the choir on that one. I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. <laughs> um, well, yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, if you just stop and think for a sec, is there anything else we would do we would we would use two of our limbs wildly differently in an mm-hmm. environment where there's a risk of falling. Um, I don't think there is right now. Let's go back uh, on, on a sidebar of that. <clears throat> what you just kind of what thought you motivated in my mind is, you know, what should hikers have in their pack for safety? Mm-hmm. Having a pair of collapsible poles isn't a bad idea. Yeah, I mean they pack down pretty tiny these days. And if you pack them in there, you have you first off, you have yourself a splint if you need it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you develop some ankle, knee, or hip pain, maybe you can use them to unload it as a quasi crutch. So, I mean, having a set of collapsible, sturdy uh, hiking poles, not for hiking, but as a, as an emergency device, may not be a bad idea. Um, all right, so we covered a lot of ground there. So, moving on to um, just sort of like maybe some final topics here when should somebody consider seeing a physical therapist i I really think it depends on the person right um i think you know um i know um for me my background is i see i have for because of my sports background i have for decades seen a lot of people as a as a primary care provider so they'll, they'll come directly to me Mm-hmm. Um, just because I know them, I know family, I know f- I've treated family, or they'll call and say, hey, can you take a look at this? Can you take a look at that? And so I think that if you talk about um, 
you know, what's our, what's our niche, you know, our niche is, you know, I, I don't, you know, one of our jokes and again, uh, not, not <laughs> too much of a joke, but you know, we, we 95% of the time we deal with quality of life. Um, we all know that quantity of life is not something that in my musculoskeletal world, I deal with a lot. Um, but at the same time, we know physical activity is the key to living a long life, right? So I think if you say, when should someone see a physical therapist? I, I would say, when do you believe you're being prevented from doing something you want to do? That's, that's a physical activity. If you're prevented from hiking, from running, from vacuuming the kitchen, from doing yard work, uh, to doing the triathlon, you have to back off. You, <clears throat> you can't do Ironmans anymore. You can only run a marathon and bike a hundred miles separately. Um, you know, when you're being precluded from those things that allow you to pursue the physical activity you want, I think that's the time for a physical therapist. Yeah, I agree. Now, obviously there are some things that PTs can't take care of. Um, one that comes to mind would be um, heel spurs or something of that nature. Can you think of any other things where, you know, just to be honest with you, uh, you know, we'll give it a shot and we'll probably get you moving a little better, but uh, here's the prognosis. Any other areas that might yeah. be a little more challenging for a therapist? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think one of the things that pops up to me is <clears throat> someone comes in and they have some knee pain. Um, you know, they're in their thirties, forties. We take a look at it and some of the, um, signs that are provocative for a meniscal injury or, uh, in their knee are, are positive. They have a history of catching. They haven't have a history of the knee giving out. Um, you know, the, we're not going to fix that quickly. That's for sure. We do know that mm -hmm. compared to, and I'm the proud owner of, you know, a, a partial meniscectomy on each of my knees, one 20 years ago and one 30 years ago. And I had those done back then because there I was, my activity level was limited. I could walk around, I could work, but I, I wasn't able to climb at that point. So <clears throat> I think that, you know, things that are clearly mechanical and are, and can be somewhat identified as, as tissue specific, you know, someone says mm -hmm. I fell and, um, uh, twisted my knee and, now they've got this big positive anterior drawer and a big effusion in their joint, big swelling in their knee. And we think they tore their ACL. You know, there is a school of thought that there are people who can live without one. I don't think I'd want to be one. Um, mm. But there's people who are copious who could live without one. But, you know, something, some traumatic injury is more likely or not to be something that if we can screen it out appropriately, um, we'll know if we can help the people or not. And, you know, like I said, I've been doing it a long time, so I am, I am uh, brutally honest um, with people about whether I, I believe I can help them or not. And you know, well, when when can I do this? When can I do that? When can I? When can I? When can I? And uh, mm -hmm. my response is always the same, which is, you know, you got two redeemable qualities uh, as a patient when you see me. Uh, most of the time, one, you're over eighteen. And two, you're not either one of my daughters. Um, so you, you can do whatever you want. Um, but here's my advice. Here's what I, here's what I think. You've come to me for my opinion. It's not truth. It's not nonfiction. It's just my opinion. But here's my opinion based on the evidence. And I either think we can help you or I think we can't help you. Or I actually think more hopefully, more importantly, that you can hopefully just help yourself. And here's what you got to do. 
Well, that, that segues nicely into one of my final questions about um, home programs. I remember reading a study years and years ago about if you give somebody more than six exercises, they'll never do yeah. them. Right. Is there any validity to that? Have you heard the same? Oh, absolutely. I, I think I've heard a number Isn't lower that than that. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, and you know what? And, and the other thing is that, and I know you see it in, in your practice as well, is that when I first got out of PT school a long time ago, uh, there was a lot of push for this biopsychosocial model, right? That people's feelings and personality and drive really dictated success in therapeutic mm-hmm. intervention. And <clears throat> then we got very uh, mechanical. And, and again, I, I teach biomechanics. I do research in biomechanics. So I'm a very nuts and bolts guy. Yeah. But um, I know that the success of um, anybody's home program or even clinical program has little to do with me and much more to do with them. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I think the key is uh, educating them well enough to kind of buy in uh, to what we're trying to quote unquote sell, right? And that what we're trying to sell is a connection between what they want to do and what we believe they need to do to achieve it. So to answer your question, I try to keep it to four. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, if I you can really nail it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it's yeah. also a, it's also a hierarchy. You know, I'll say, listen, here are two things you really got to do. And here's three or four things that, you know, if you get to them a couple, three times a week, it's probably good. But these two things you really have to do. And I mean, the things that I see probably, probably if you were to tell me the thing that I see more than anything else, it's, it's anterior hip tightness. Um, Mm, Oh, no question. I mean, I see it with everybody. So I feel like I'm a broken record sometime. Um, You know, I had a, one of my, my graduate students a couple of years ago, we did a whole bunch of uh, videos <clears throat> to give to the cross country team, sort of as injury prevention, uh, mm-hmm. extensibility. We didn't call them stretching extensibility. And uh, it seemed to make a bit of a difference. And if nothing else, it made them aware, right? It goes back to mm-hmm. the same thing that I think quote unquote stretching or extensibility has two functions, right? One is therapeutic to improve the extensibility of the tissue but that same activity, if it's done in and around activity, can be diagnostic, especially post-activity. Right? We talked about what do you do before they, right when they get out of the car. Well, what do, what do they do before they get in the car? Because you know when they get out of the car at home, they're going to be stiff and sore. No question. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> so what do you do before you get in the car? Same thing. Take stock, right? What feels tight? What feels weak? What feels sore? What feels tender? Poke around a little bit. Um, use that information to make good decisions in terms of what you're going to do over the next four or five days. Well, I mean, that's pretty much my list of questions I had. Um, and oh, here, here's a good one to finish this up. Are PTs the worst patients or are nurses or, or doctors? <laughs> uh, so I'll, I'll let a little, I'll let a little personal medical history slip, which is uh, back on July 4th, I actually ruptured my Achilles tendon. Oh, that's um, a tough one. Um, a complete rupture. Yeah, a complete rupture. Whew. And uh, so I've been very fortunate that I've been around the, I've been around the business a long time. So I knew some people to call and they knew who to put me in touch with. So um, I had the surgery around the 8th. It's a new procedure. Uh, mm-hmm. And so 
may not, it will probably be lost on most of your listeners, but won't be lost on you. I was, uh, I started running at 12 weeks. Wow. That's Um, pretty impressive. Yeah. And I'm, I'm four months next week and I ran three miles this weekend. Uh, I'm hiking. Uh, Wow. uh, I have full motion. That's amazing. Yeah. And so uh, I, I tore my Achilles at the right time in history because I've done great. But what it's given me insight into is being a being a patient for a long time, <clears throat> and uh, I I have a little bit more empathy than I had four months ago. Um, <laughs> I I think that uh, uh, if Mike was here, he would probably not agree with this. But um, you know, if you say what's the worst, patient? he's a runner. I would say my joke always is the worst patient uh, is a runner. No, the third worst patient I've ever had is a runner. Because all they want to do is run, yeah? The <laughs> second worst patient is a run, runner who's an engineer. Because all they want to do is run and they see everything as black and white. And we know <laughs> nothing we do is black and white. And the, the worst patient ever is the runner whose mother and father are engineers. <laughs> That's the worst combination. And I say that tongue-in-cheek because <laughs> I like dealing with the active population. And I love educating and, uh, you know, it's, that's the challenge is making people understand that it's simple, but it's not that simple. Where it hurts isn't necessarily where the problem is. And just because you feel fine doesn't mean you're fine. Um, and if we use those two things to guide this load tolerance equation, which, I, again, you can make the case that when Tom, someone tears their ACL, I mean, I tore my Achilles, right? It was a load tolerance imbalance, right? My my Achilles was apparently fine, but I, I overloaded it um, to the point where it failed, right? Mm-hmm. And I actually asked the doc who did the surgery, I said, say, how did it look? I mean, I said, it must have it looked pretty crappy to tear. And he said, you know, actually, your Achilles looked pretty good. He goes, sometimes just it's just too much load. And I said, boy, mm-hmm. I wasn't doing anything spectacular, so I'm just surprised by that. But, you know, it is that load tolerance imbalance that I really think drives the boat and if everybody could kind of understand it from a, a seven-day perspective versus a nine-hour hike perspective, I think we'd see less overuse injury. Yeah. Yeah, well said. Well, congrats for getting back on the uh, the trail so fast. That's pretty cool. Um, how do how do people get a hold of you if they need you? Any, uh, we can put some links on the show notes and everything else. Yeah, I, I can send you some links. I mean, I, I think... Uh, probably the easiest way would be uh, I'll, I'll put an email in there, which is uh, aocannon at gmail.com. Uh, my at, my one at the college is cannona at, at merrimack.edu. You know, I, I think those are the best ways to get a hold of me. I mean, um, I'm out on, on Facebook and Instagram as well, but honestly, I don't get out there very much. Um, yeah. I'm someone who is a strong proponent of our healthcare system and its multiple failings. And so where those failings reside are mostly in our world, right? As I said earlier, I, our healthcare system isn't designed around musculoskeletal overuse injuries that impact physical activity. Thankfully, because I'd rather have it designed around helping when I have a heart attack. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what it's designed for. Um, but so in that case, it's trying to get people to identify trends, right? Again, it goes with going back to what during a hike and outside of a hike, everybody's going to have aches and pains. That's part and parcel to being active, right? 
I would love to be able to predict injury better. And um, there's a, a overuse trauma tool that comes out of Oslo that we've corrupted uh, to use with the distance running population. And I've used it with um, uh, some running clubs as well as some, it's sort of a self-report scale that's by region and it rates, you know, how much was you, how much did your, was your training limited? How much was your activity limited? And you, tr- it's a, it's a trends analysis to look at are is something going in the wrong direction? And can you identify it before it becomes symptomatic? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that I think is, is fun. I'd love to get that. Uh, be a fun, I think it would be a fun experiment to get that out to the hiking world some way, shape or form. I agree. Yeah. I actually, I've seen those, those scales. I mean, we should probably link to it and get it out there because it is a lot of fun. Yeah. Because I think the bottom line is the way people will be injured less is if they're aware more. And there's has to be a balance associated with that because part of that balance is uh, I don't know the less, less, less uh, harsh word, but you know, to be a little less hypochondriacal uh, mm-hmm. about every, every ache and pain, but at the same time, be able to say, how, how is it impacting me? Right. It hurts, but is it in, is it impacting me one way, shape or form? And um, I think, uh, you know, the, uh, I joke with my older daughter, we were away at a wedding this weekend. I joke with my older daughter that the only time she calls is when she has a question about why this hurts or why that hurts. And uh, to a certain degree, I do a lot of that. And uh, I think there's a there's a model out there for uh, providing care in a way that is predictive or preventative in injury and not just responsive or or reactive to injury. All right, my friend. Well, that's probably a good place to wrap it up. I really want to thank you for coming in. I think it was really well rounded towards the hiking community and the people that listen to this dumb podcast, as Mike says. And um, I thank you very much. I think that was great. Yeah. And, uh, and again, I, uh, I know that if you get up to reckless, if you ever get up to reckless on a, when you're there, give a shout, just um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm known by two names there. I'm known by Andy and Sandy, meaning my, I'm Andy and my wife's name is Sandy. So people come in and they say, hey, is Andy Sandy here? And uh, so uh most of my time in the summertime, I'm out in the beer shed uh, on the deck pouring beer out there, which is a fun place to be out of the hubbub a little bit. But I hear listeners are uh, starting to come in there more often now, which is great. So if you're if you're stopping it up up at Reckless, be sure to tell them that uh, you heard about it from uh, the podcast, and definitely say hi to yeah, Andy. And again, and come Sandy. in and ask Brandy and Sandy, right? And uh, yeah, and uh, one of us may likely be there. <laughs> All right, my friend. Well, thank you very much. And um, get me those links and we'll add them to the show notes and we'll definitely have you back sometime or another too. Yeah, that'd be great, Stomp. And uh, good luck with your uh, with your new venture as well, yeah? Oh, yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, that he's, he's mentioned. And I just announced it during the last episode, which hasn't been released yet. So it's pretty exciting. I actually am going to be treating my first patient there tomorrow. So, woo. Nice. Yeah. We're in Franconia, is it? Uh, 155 Main Street. So it's literally in, you take a quick right to where the school is, the Lafayette School. Yeah. And you yep. bank a hard 90 degrees right there. It's um, right there where the chiropractic office is. So I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah, it's exciting. 
Yeah, it, it is. And I, uh, at some point, I'd love to stop by and take a look. It'd be nice to meet you face to face. And if there's any ways we can professionally collaborate, that, that'd be great too. Absolutely. Yeah, I would, I would enjoy that. Well, great. All righty, Stomp. Take care. <laughs> you too. Yeah, see you. Cool. But Stomp, good stuff. Very interesting uh, discussion with Andy. He seems like a very cool guy. Yeah, yeah, he really is. Very skilled, and you can tell he's <clears throat> been around the block a few times and knows how to treat all kinds of different maladies, and um, it's tested. You can tell he's tested. It's The stuff he does is solid, and it works generally. So, Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I like his point about like uh, just sort of staying staying consistent but not overdoing it you know i think that that's been that was my epiphany like i was dealing with a ton of these issues with it bands achilles tendonitis and a little bit of planter stuff and my Mm -hmm. my epiphany was like and i did cross training and i was into triathlons and all this stuff but um my epiphany was to to slow down on the running like slow my pace down and then to just keep my miles reasonable. Like I just do my 25 to 30 miles a week, and then that's just enough to keep me in shape to go hiking because that's my end goal. And it sounds yeah. like he, you know, he he's um, in line with that. But just don't push yourself too hard and, you know, don't risk those repetitive injuries. Yeah, I mean, have stretchable, flexible muscles and have muscles that are super strong, basically. And that's a great way to avoid um, injury, but also just mix up your routines. I don't think he and I touched upon the the benefits of cross-training as much as we could have, I guess, but mm-hmm. cross-training is another great way to, to minimize uh, injury, repetitive stress. Yeah, yeah. And I love the uh, the talk about the, the hiking pulse. That's going to be, con- uh, that's gonna be controversial, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I was really glad that he was on the same page with me. Um, it's true. It's like it, think of like an elder. If an, if a person uses a rolling walker, for instance, or a cane, they're relying on that device, so their body isn't being used to the the maximum that it can be. So that's sort of the the same idea with um, hiking poles. You're not challenging your body's natural inherent balance systems. You know, um, it makes sense. Um, I can, you know, when you're doing a water crossing or something like that, sure, that makes sense. But there is a good argument there that you are diminishing your, your body's natural abilities. So what do, you, what do you think I should, so I've been a, um, a pole user for forever now, and I just don't even think about it twice. But I mean, I do have, you know, an easy setup where I can just keep my poles in my backpack. So I think I'm going to start doing that now just to sort of like challenge myself like you're talking about and mix it up. And then maybe yeah. I'll just use the poles as a insurance policy, especially in winter hiking. I do feel like it is helpful to have them as I'm going down. And it's also like a, it's like a fidgety type of thing for me. I'm like, I just, you know, I want something to do and, it, and the, the poles sort of keep, keep you sort of I guess, engaged a little bit, but maybe I'll just try ditching them a little bit. Well, for me, it was the balance thing that is the strongest argument for for not using poles. But, you know, you can also argue that if you're uh, trying to reduce the weight on sore joints or things like that, then that makes sense. I mean, if you have an arthritic hip, then poles can unload that joint. So, you know, it depends on your situation, but if you're a healthy individual without any underlying issues, you probably want to try to go without them a bit. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, too, because that's the other thing. I think Andy had talked about this was the, um, you know, sort of like the 
the best gear is often the most comfortable gear and not really the, you know, for shoes he was talking about, like, you know, the, the comfort sort of ties to, um, you know, injury prevention. And I do feel like with the poles, it does make it a lot more comfortable for me personally anyway. So I don't know. Just to add another kink to the pole argument, when I used to hike with poles, I would never adjust them to the angle of the hike. I would always keep them at the same static position because in my mind as a therapist, if you're constantly adjusting, then your body is getting more repetitive stress than if you keep them at one static length. And then your your, your range of motion is going to be constantly changing. So you're using your muscle more dynamically. So that's a whole other kink that you can <laughs> argue about. Do you, huh. do you modify the length or do you keep them static? I keep them static when I used to use poles. Well, even more so, and this is, Jesus, we're geeking out now, but I've even transitioned so much on my pole situation that, like, when I'm hiking now, especially, like, um, on flatter stuff or when I'm going uphill that's not super steep, you know how you sort of, like, you reach outward with your poles, and I'm I'm doing a reaching outward pole? I actually adjust my poles down so low so that I'm actually, like, I'm, I'm sort of holding my poles right at my my leg length so that I'm yeah. like um I'm not using them like you would um you know reaching outward I'm just using them to lean on directly with my weight so they're super like low and then when mm-hmm. I'm you know sometimes when I'm I'm going like uphill like they're really low and then I guess downhill I extend them out a lot more so yeah yeah interesting anyway Anyway, but poles, I do poles, like the but, other thing about the sort of comfort being the main thing about sneakers. I can't, I cannot tell you how many times I've seen people that are like, oh, I went and I got zero drop shoes be, or trail runners <laughs> because that's what everybody else said and that's what was the most popular choice. And now I've got Achilles tendonitis and I don't know what happened. And they were like, I didn't think that these were super comfortable anyway. It's like, yeah. go with the comfortable shoes. Don't go with the what everybody else tells you. Right. Oh, Absolutely. Yep, it has to fit your foot. Very good. So, any other thoughts about you and Andy's discussion, or we want to move on to search and rescue? Yeah, I think we're good. If anybody has feedback, let us know. And I think, um, you know, Andy's talked to me subsequently, you know, uh, in personal text and stuff. And um, if you guys have any injuries or specific things you want us to maybe deep dive on in the future, just drop a line and uh, maybe we can tackle one here and there. But uh, yeah, let's do some search and rescue. It's been a little while. All right, yeah. I mean, we've had, um, yeah, we've had definitely a, like a a backlog here that we're looking to catch up on here. So the first one is from October, and I don't think these are in date order, so I apologize ahead of time. But this is um, October eighteenth, fishing game um, in Androscoggin Valley Search and Rescue and Pemi Valley Search and Rescue along with Twin Mountain Fire Department conducted a two-mile carryout of an injured hiker Sunday night from Edmonds Path, uh, which is on Eisenhower. And the hiker was a 25-year-old female from New Hampshire, from Mm Mance Vegas, and uh, suffered a lower leg injury when she slipped on wet leaves. So it's starting to get snow up there, but like um, mid-October, it was more like wet leaves. So the call came in around 2. Rescuers got there around 5, maybe a little bit before 5. And mm-hmm. then uh, they were able to treat the uh, the victim, and then they got her um, 
I guess, settled and ready to go down around 5.40. They got a good timeline on this one. And then they got it to the trailhead by 8 p.m. So it was a 2 o'clock call. They got there within three hours. They got everything situated within about 45 minutes and then carried her out and got her out by 8 o'clock. Is that normal? Does it take, like, once you get there and you get a crew, like, 45 minutes to get them settled in the litter and do all the triage and all that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they they generally... The people at staging generally have it down to the hour. They know when you're going to be out. I mean, they're moving at, what, just over a mile an hour? Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. Um, no, under an hour. Under a mile an hour. No, um, about so a that, mile an hour because it's two miles, and they, they got moving a little bit before six and got her out at eight. So it's a, about a mile an hour. Yeah. So that's, that's. I mean, for the conditions that night, I think it was pretty crappy out um, and dark. So that's a good pace. Surprisingly, lately, I we've been hauling, hauling ass down like falling waters and stuff. Sometimes um, to the point where you're like, "Hey, hey, we got to slow this down. <laughs> We're gonna get hurt here." Yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah, you're averaging. You know, it's gonna be twice as long to get out as it is to get there to the person generally. So, uh, yeah. All right. So, and you weren't, you didn't go on this one, right? No, I was tied up doing something. I can't even remember. But okay. I did not make that, but the uh, team did well. And then, so Eisenhower, like, so Andros, Andrew, Sir, Andrew Scoggin, Search and Rescue, and then Pemi will split split that area depending on who's available? Right, yeah. I mean, generally the state is considered like a mutual aid setup for volunteer search teams, search and rescue teams. But um, we will go over to that western side of, Mount Washington, Mount Clinton Road, and help out there. Or at Jackson, Mount Willard, and that's about as far as we'll go generally. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. All right. So this next one is a incident that happened on October. Oh, hold on a sec. October nineteenth at three thirty on Conway. Ambulance service, Lakes Region Search and Rescue, and then uh, the Solo. Solo must have had a class going on along with the New Hampshire Fishing Game responded to a report of an injured hiker on White Ledge Loop Trail, hmm. which this is going to bother me. I don't know where that <laughs> is. White Ledge Loop Trail. Um, I think it's proximate to the uh, cathedral and all that. Or is that White Horse Ledge? I don't cathedral know. Cathedral Ledge? I don't know, actually. It looks like I'm, I'm just pulling it up on a map here. It's a good question. So I'm not exactly sure. It looks more like in the in the lakes region. But oh. anyway, um, but then it's a, all right. So the it's a 73-year-old female from North Conway. Right. She uh, was about a mile from the trailhead with an injured ankle, and she wasn't able to walk. So, again, the, the call came in at 3.30, and um, she was carried in a litter to the trailhead arriving after 6 p.m., and they transported her to a hospital in North Conway. But, yeah, I thought that this was behind Cathedral Ledge, but I don't know. I'm, I'm not, not sure. sure myself. I'm just looking at a map right here, and I didn't do – I should have done a little bit of research, but it looks like it's in the – could be the bell naps. I'm not sure. See, and I pronounced that correctly. But anyway, hmm. we'll we'll do a little bit of research and figure that out. But all's well that ends well. Lower leg injury. Yeah, another close one. Thank God. Like yeah, a, a mile yeah. up. 
yeah, you're always right. thankful for those <laughs> brief ones. Yeah, exactly. Well, this next one is not so, you're not so fortunate. Matter of fact, I think yeah. you were involved in this one. So this is an injured hiker rescued off of Mount Garfield. So this was October 22nd. I don't know what day of the week that is. Um, but Fishing Game yeah. was notified of an injured hiker on the Garfield Trail. 23-year-old from Massachusetts. So Stomp, you were on this one. So why don't you take it away and just give your give your perspective? Yeah, when this call came in, um, it was the evening, late evening, and it was following a couple really rainy days. So Garfield Trail was a complete mess. I mean, just mud and every bit of vegetation was just soaked and it was socked in. So um, I guess these folks were at the summit when uh, Caitlin slipped and fell and injured um, her lower leg. And uh, she was with several other people uh, approximate to the summit. So we started making our way up uh, with warming gear and the litter. And um, in the meantime, that's what, like four or five miles just to, to get to the summit. So that's a lengthy hike up. Yeah. And um, while we were making our way up, the party actually started making their way down because it was just too cold. Um, definitely a risk of hypothermia this night. So they made their way down, and um, I think we met them at, at approximately 3,300 feet and uh, got her situated in the litter and started making our way down. And while that's all happening, Fish and Game is driving up on ATVs behind us on old skitter or snowmobile trails up to about maybe 2,500 feet or so where there's just this big rock in the way and you have to park the ATVs there. So thankfully, it, it was, you know, they made their way down, which saved us a lot of time. And um, we got to the ATV and got her on there and um, she was able to drive out back to the trailhead. Uh, just, it's like a deja vu there. It's funny, you get so used to how these trails and these, these missions work. We know like, exactly how this is going to roll out generally unless there's some unforeseen event but uh you know it's like you get the victim bring her down or whoever hit the rock get her on the atv so it's nice when you have that predictability on these missions good turnout too yeah you got a good good crew and then this was was it raining it wasn't raining it was just like it was socked low, in. Low-hanging fog, socked <clears> in and stuff. Super, super low, but it was thick. I mean, you know, as I was hiking up, you could see, you know, the combination of the fog and the dark, I could see maybe 30 feet in front of me with my headlamp on high. It was pretty thick and just nasty damp. Yeah, when it gets like that too, with that low fog, like mm. a headlamp is all, it's, I wouldn't say it's useless, but like a headlamp in that in those foggy conditions you're lucky if you can see like five, six feet in front of you sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. It's almost an impediment sometimes. You end up, I find looking down at my feet is probably the best option instead of forward. Forward's just nasty because you just have the drizzle in front of your eyes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, so. Oh, man. What a nasty, muddy season that was, though. Ugh. Well, the snow is here, so we'll be yes. uh, we'll be talking about snow soon, which is exciting. So, But good, good work. And, yeah. Uh, did you sleep well awesome. when you got home? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's always uh, draining when you're out in that cold weather. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's um, that's I honestly I don't. That's why I, even though I complain to doing the honeydew list here and doing the work around the house, like in late, 
in late October through November, like I don't stress that much because honestly, like I'm not a huge fan of of hiking. Even when it starts snowing, like the early early snows, like your your gear does get hacked up, like your micro spikes, mm-hmm. or if you got to use snowshoes, like everything sinks through to the rocks. So it's not it's not great for your gear. Not that I care that much, <laughs> but it's just like. You, you tear up your micro spikes and it just kind of sucks because they get dull and then when it when you really need them they, they get <laughs> <Right>. all <they're, laughs> yeah, they're, they don't bite the junk yeah speaking yeah. of that i need to get get some new stuff i'm hoping i can find a pair of uh hill sound soon because my um i have an old pair of katulas and they're just junk yeah i matter of fact i saw speaking of that like i do and i wonder how many people do this but like i saw somebody was like posting a question about like what do you put in your gear kit to like uh, deal with like repairs of like spikes and stuff like that and everyone's like duct tape and zip tape uh, zip ties and like mm-hmm. somebody was like gorilla glue or something i don't know what that's gonna do but um hmm. but anyway the one thing that i i keep in mind is that like i do have a i i hacked up my original pair of micro spikes but they're still working. I mean, they're still like intact and everything. So yeah. what I will do is, you know, I just throw an old set. Of, I don't actually do the pier. I just have one. And I have that at the bottom of my pack just in case like the new spikes that I have, like if one of them tears or breaks, I can just swap it out. And even though like the the, the spikes are a little bit duller, like it's easier to just swap it out and know that I have a backup there in case like one of my uh one of my spikes breaks or something so i don't have to deal with the field repair and then also mm-hmm. i have one extra just in case you know if sometimes you do you, you'll run into somebody that has an issue or there's they're not smart and they didn't bring spikes and at least you have one one pair that you can give them to just say like use it to stay a little safe right. so a little, he- little heavy but it's worth bringing mm-hmm Anyway, so the next one here happened on November 1st. Uh, actually, no, October 30th. So Saturday, October 30th, shortly before 8 p.m., New Hampshire Fishing Game was notified that a hiker was missing on the Rocky Branch Trail in the area of Mount Isolation. 31-year-old male from Boston was hiking with friends. and I don't understand this, but whatever. He stopped short of the summit, and the rest of the group continued on. Yeah, they planned on if you're gonna hike that far, like what are you doing stopping below the summit? Like you're you've already hiked probably like five or six miles. But anyway, they planned to meet him on the way back down, and when they returned, he was gone. So the guy left some items on the trail so that his friends would know he was descending. Like what? What is that? What does that mean? <laughs> I don't know. So then the group returned to their vehicles and he was not there. So they drove to get cell phone service because you know that Rocky Branch Trail, you got to drive down into Jackson before you get cell connection. Mm -hmm. So then they called for assistance. So that must have happened like at eight o'clock at night. So they were hiking, they separated. And then uh, this dude, again, 31 year old guy from Boston, um, he's missing. Conservation officers responded and searched for him throughout the night. Uh, heavy rain and high, fast-moving streams added to the challenge of locating the guy. Apparently, he missed a turn and was hiking out on a much longer trail. It doesn't say where, uh, but he was overcome by darkness. Credit to him, he found a rocky area off trail, took shelter through the night, must have been drenched. And uh, in oh, the yeah. morning, he was able to find the trail, and he hiked out to a trailhead, and I guess he thumbed a ride into town. I don't know well, what town. What are the options? I mean... What's what's around there? You'd have, Jackson, you'd have to go. Yeah. 
yeah, or south, right, to the junction there of uh, 16 and 30, is it 302? Yeah, it's like Jackson, or well, Jackson's the closest, and then you get into Glen and then North Conway, but who knows. But yeah. I guess he was able to um, shortly before 1030 on Sunday, so they're out there looking for him all night and in the morning. He was yeah. able to make a cell phone call to alert everyone that he was okay and out of the woods, so... Hmm. Just stay together. Like, I don't get it. Don't separate. Yeah, it's an interesting story. Um, you know, I was most curious about how they managed all the water. The water that weekend was massively high. Oh, yeah. And it's not the trail I would have picked for uh, a hike. You know, there's a lot of crossings and dangerously high. Uh, the gauges were off the chart that weekend. So, yeah, I don't always consider what the water is doing when you're picking a trail. Yeah, that's a horrible place to go when it's wet. So, um, yeah. Rocky Branch Trail is a horrible place to go, just period, in my opinion. I much prefer to go Glen, uh, Glen Boulder. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> With true. Isolation. So. That's a great approach. The wonderful approach. Yeah, yeah. We did. Me, you, and Chaga did that before, so we gotta yeah, we gotta try beautiful. that again. Yeah. Yeah, that stretch has like a a Kate sleeper feel. It's just remote, and uh, you know. Uh, not as maintained as some of the other trails, but awesome. So last one here is a uh, hiker in distress. So this happened on November 5th, shortly after 2 p.m. Fishing Game was notified that a hiker was suffering from medical medical issue on the Piper Trail. So 59-year-old gentleman from New Jersey, he was coming down Chicora with a group of six family members, and he was about two and a half miles from the trailhead. Wasn't feeling well, um, couldn't continue hiking, and uh, I guess he rested, didn't show any signs of improvement, so um, fishing game, and then um, I guess solo students were able to arrive on scene, and then Lakes Region Search and Rescue. Lakes Region, they get, just with Chikora alone, they're, they've got to stay busy constantly, so mm. um I guess when they arrived, this guy's condition improved enough for him to begin walking on his own, and he was met on trail by the solo students, and they walked him back to the trailhead. So he was back. So the call came in at 2. He must have rested for I don't know how long, but um, they came back at the trailhead by 7. So then he was evaluated by like the fire department, and then they took him via ambulance up to North Conway to check him out. So all's well that ends well. The solo students got a little bit of action. I'm sure Chris was excited. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you learn a lot on these missions. Yeah. Um, and I think I got a, I got one non-local one here, actually. Okay. This was, um, this is out in the Rocky Mountains. And this, this, this story was interesting to me because we talked about that guy. Um, I forget his name, Michael something or other that's missing on Lafayette since 1983. So mm -hmm. this was a, a story in the in the Rockies. The West German hiker was missing since 1983. I think he was doing backcountry skiing back then, which that that's a um, a pretty unique thing to be doing. I think back in the 80s, but um, the guy somehow he got caught in an avalanche or something happened, and yeah. his remains were located. So. You know, how many years later, this is like 40 years later, somebody did find his remains. So it gives me a little bit of hope that maybe someday somebody might stumble upon the remains of uh, the guy on Lafayette. I mean, what are the odds? You're talking just such a massive amount of terrain. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Needle in a haystack. So, And I feel like those mountains out there, like there's way more above treeline space. Like mm -hmm. the problem with Lafayette is that like there's so much like scrub and like 
really thick forest that you would have to get through to find stuff that it I don't know I don't know if they'll ever find them hmm yeah and then the last bit of news I had here and I, I don't think I covered this in any other episode so Mara Murray um, we always talk about her on here and um, there was some bones that were discovered on Loon Mountain probably about six weeks ago and everybody was sort of excited because there is you know local rumors that there was some folks from loon mountain that were involved in potentially like mara's situation but there's never been any proof just rumors uh mm-hmm. so everyone said oh there's bones here i guess they found them when they were digging up um, for a new high-speed cheerlift or something that they're putting in loon uh, but it turns out that they came back they did radiocarbon dating on the bones and it turns out that they're like from the seven, late 1700s to the mid-1900s, and they think it's very likely they're sort of late 1800s. So it's mm-hmm. it's basically an old old burial. They don't know if it was like a they don't know, they don't know anything about it other than there's just the bones are much older than than what Mara Murray would be. So it's not her. Yeah. Any idea of what uh, altitude they found this at? I don't know. I think I'd have to take a look. I don't know if it was at the top of the chairlift or not. I, I I think you can sort of read through the Mara Murray Reddit site to get a sense of where these bones were located, but I, I don't know the altitude. Hmm. Okay. I honestly, my biggest skepticism about, about this whole story was the fact that Mara was, went missing in like February, and I don't think that it's very likely that they would have... Um, you know, abducted her if she if she was killed. Like they're not going to be able to bury. Maybe they would. I don't know. But I think it would be a little bit tricky to bury a body on a ski mountain in the middle of February when you know the ground's frozen and there's a lot of people around. Yeah, makes sense. Well, that's why I was asking about the elevation too, because like who's going to drag somebody up to four thousand feet? You know, or maybe it's yeah. at the base, which would make more sense. But. Yeah, exactly. So she's still, I mean, maybe she's still out there. I don't know. Um, There have been stories about people that have been found that have been like kept prisoner for like so many years. Um, I think it's more likely that she's probably ran off um, for fear of the police got stuck in the woods somewhere and she's still sitting there waiting to be found. But I don't know. Well, hopefully someday we'll get some resolution on that one. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. But uh, I think that's it, man. We're so we're pushing the time here, so I don't know if we can. We're gonna punt on the history stuff, and we'll move that to next week with with uh, Ken Bossy. Okay, sounds good. All right, so good job, Stomp. You um, you were flying solo in your interview. <laughs> I'm proud of you. <laughs> yeah, man, it's intimidating doing an interview. Like you just, I I feel for you. You do a great job, though. By the way, I mean it does take a lot of work. It's all thinking all ahead my- and. All my years of listening to Howard Stern. Yeah, I guess so. The, he's a master, isn't he? Well, he used he's to still be. at it, isn't he? Yeah, he's he's become pretty lame. He's turned into Imus. So. Who's who's like number one right now? Is it Joe Rogan? Like in terms of the, it, it's all shifted to podcasting now, hasn't it? Yeah, it's all shifted to podcasting. I think Joe Rogan is a pretty big. Um, He's probably the biggest podcaster out there. And then it's all politics. It's all political bullshit. That, yeah. Um, so it depends on, like, if, if you're sort of a more progressive person, you probably have a set of podcasts and radio people that you like. But, like, I think Rush Limbaugh's gone now. And then Howard has just gone mainstream. So he's not even, like, he's lost so many listeners because everyone's just, like, it's lame now. He's barely on. Yeah. Um, people don't so. dig the politics. No, no. I have I mean, I'm. No. 
it's everybody's sort of just very tribal at this point, and um, mm-hmm. you know nobody's, you know, um, yeah, I, we don't even want to get into politics, but yeah, nobody digs politics at this point, so we won't get into <laughs> it. But um, yeah, but anyway, I mean, it's we're just hacks here, so we're, we're just going off of what we we think is right, and hopefully people enjoy it. But I thought you did a great job with the interview, so yeah. Well, hopefully I'll get to do it again sometime. That was sort of comfortable ground for me, you know, being a PT. But uh, yeah, thank you. Cool. All right. Well, let's wrap it up. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered on today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information on slasherpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until next time, on behalf of Mike and Stomp, get out there and crush some peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fish and game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Neeland, New Hampshire Fish and Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? Seems to me the most common is being unprepared, and I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all.